Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to stay on top of the latest news from China with a fantastically comprehensive daily newsletter, a smartphone app, and of course, at our website, subchina.com. We've got more and more original content, so be sure to sign up and visit us regularly for a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the Seneca South Studio in downtown Durham, North Carolina. Joining me from the Council on Foreign Relations in New York is Jeremy Goldcorn, Editor-in-Chief at SubChina. How are you, Jeremy? I am doing very well indeed, and delighted to be here in person at the Council on Foreign Relations today, because our guest for this week's podcast is Adam Siegel. Listeners will remember that Adam is Maurice R. Greenberg's Senior Fellow for China Studies and Director of the Program on Digital and Cyberspace Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, which is quite a mouthful. Adam is also the author of the excellent book, Hacked World Order, How Nations Fight, Trade, Maneuver, and Manipulate in the Digital Age. We spoke to him in May of last year, as many of you may recall. Adam, welcome back to Seneca. It's my pleasure to be back. Yes, indeed, Adam. Welcome back. Uh, um, before we plunge in, maybe we should remind listeners that if they're interested in a pretty in-depth discussion about China's ideas about cyber sovereignty, uh, well, we got into the weeds with that in our May 2016 show with, with Adam. And of course, we talked a lot about cyber espionage and cyber warfare as well. So those topics aren't going to be our focus today. Instead, we're going to be focused on, on China's new cybersecurity law and on related regulatory changes that have taken place in the last year or so. Uh, let me get in a quick plug for Graham Webster's excellent piece on China's cyber rules on subchina.com. It's titled China and the Eight Guardian Warriors of American Tech, What Does China Mean by Secure and Controllable, and Who Stands to Lose? Adam, much has happened since we spoke to you last. China may have been displaced by Russia as the cyber bad guy number one, at least from the American perspective. Uh, but China and cyber are still very much in the news for other reasons. One of those, of course, is the cybersecurity law that was adopted in November of last year and went into effect on June 1 this year. And that will be the focus of today's discussion. But perhaps first you could give us an overview of the year in things cyber with a focus on China. What were the most important developments since we last spoke to you? Yeah, it's been a it's been a, a busy, important year. I, I think the biggest change is, as you noted, is that U.S. focus has really gone from Chinese commercial cyber espionage to Russian influence operations. Uh, and that is driving most of the discussion on how the U.S. thinks about cybersecurity and cyberspace. On the China side, um, as both you and Kaiser noted, of course, is the cybersecurity law beginning its implementation. And we see what's 
seems to be a long-term trend of uh, Xi Jinping and the party tightening even further control on internet, uh, civil society, academia, and basically uh, across the board uh, in China. And uh, speaking of that, there's all sorts of rumors right now uh, about the crackdown on, on VPNs, virtual private networks. Uh, some saying it is already well underway, others saying it won't be that bad. Uh, some people say there's no way to really stop people from circumventing the Great Firewall. And others saying if they're really determined to plug the holes, they can do it. Uh, wh- what is your take on it? Yeah, I, I think there's clearly a long-term trend, and that is to, to try to plug the holes. The VPN issue seems to have tamed a little bit. I mean, I have not been to China in the last six months, but reading Bill Bishop's report at Sinocism and that he managed to bring four separate VPNs in and, and said he didn't really have too much of a too much of a problem operating them. Um, I, I suspect that there might be some space there, but I, I still think the long term trend is is still towards greater control. But it but it'll be a cat and mouse game. I don't think they'll ever be able to plug all of the holes. I don't think they'll want to. I think there is a strong argument that for business and academia, they're always going to need some access to the outside world, and, the, and their leadership is, is aware of that. Adam, the last data that I actually saw on VPN use in China was way back in 2010 from Berkman. Uh, do you have a, a sense of just how many of China's now, what, 731 million internet users actually are making use of circumvention tools? I mean, last time I think... They said it was 3% even in the most internet-restricted countries in the world. And and I talked to the Berkman folks. They said in China's case, it was actually more like 1.5%. Yeah, I, I haven't seen any updated numbers, but I, I think that basic idea is is right. We're, we're talking about a very, very small percentage of China's vast number of internet users. You know, the, the point is, is that those users are particularly important. They make a lot of noise. They're technologically sophisticated. They tend to be tech entrepreneurs or academics or others who both have a, a real need for accessing uh, information outside the Great Firewall. Uh, and The coastal elites who need access to the fake news, in other words. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the fake news and the fake science. Um, right. But yeah, they need, you know, they need it for, for some uh, innovation, business, whatever reasons. And that's why I don't think that the party is... You know, that the VPNs is not a massive concern for them because, you know, these are a lot of these people have already bought into the system anyways, right? They, they are benefiting from it. They're unlikely to be uh, the sources of, of massive protests. So, I mean, what they're right. essentially doing with this, this current clampdown on VPNs is just making it difficult for, you know, Joe, the average Joe to, to get it easily. You, you, it's giving another hurdle to get a, a VPN, but it, your take is it's unlikely that they'll absolutely stop access to VPNs. Yeah, I think um, they're always happy to raise the hurdle for the technologically unsophisticated or the or the lazy, but they are unlikely, I think, to block everything. But again, they will they will shift their focus. They will see what's being used by people. And we, we've seen, right, with, you know, WhatsApp, they weren't paying that much attention to. And then uh, with images, they started blocking because they were worried about uh, some organization and some attacks on, on Xi Jinping. So it's a very flexible system and one that technologically has been able to respond to uh, what people have been doing to try to get around. So let's move now and talk about the cybersecurity law itself. Uh, first, I guess let's start with what was the genesis of the law and what was Beijing really aiming to do in passing it? Uh, I think the genesis had two sources. One is just a long-term concern about cybersecurity. 
in the States, you know, we always talk about Chinese hacking uh, of the U.S., but the Chinese also think of themselves as being very, very vulnerable to attacks. Um, and as the economy becomes more dependent on um, social media apps and, uh, you know, payment and financial tech and all these other things, they're worried about their increasing vulnerability. The, the big driver probably were the Snowden revelations. So China has long suspected that U.S. companies provided access to the U.S. government. Of course, the companies have always denied that. And then the Snowden revelations really seem to reinforce in China's mind that the companies were not uh, the products were not trustworthy. So the drive has really, I think, been to uh, increase Chinese cybersecurity and also reduce dependence on foreign suppliers. The, the, the law went through several drafts, right? What, what did it say in its original form? And was the, the draft that eventually passed, was that softened at all? So the, the drafts were a little bit softened. So the, the primary issues for foreign companies operating in China have been the issue of data localization, right? So where is data stored and what type of data is stored inside of China? And then the issue of encryption and providing technical uh, support to the Chinese government. Earlier drafts of that were even more vague than they are now. And one of the drafts suggested um, providing technical support for encryption, which meant as far as outside an analyst could imagine would be providing backdoors and somehow breaking encryption for the Chinese government. The wording now is broader. Um, uh, so it's unclear of what the Chinese government is going to demand. And data localization, there was some greater definition about business information versus private information, but there's still some ambiguity about what uh, critical information is or what critical services are. So there's still a great deal of concern about what that's going to mean for actual business practices in China. Now, there were some areas where there was pretty remarkable softening, I thought. I mean, at one point, I think there was a draft that required American companies or foreign companies to deposit actual source code. Uh, they had like the the banking regulator actually as as the 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 banker of the source code supposedly and I think they they backed down on, on that one um, anyway I mean how effective generally was the pushback from American companies uh, from these eight guardian warriors were they able to soften the uh, related laws like the counterterrorism law as it as it impacted them yeah I don't, I don't think it's been particularly uh, effective in the sense that I you know these the counterterrorism law, the cybersecurity law, um, the national security law, you know, these are all part of pretty large trends and policy, you know, priorities for Xi Jinping. And the, the scope, I think, for foreign influence is pretty narrow. Um, mm -hmm. again, I, you know, there was some, as you said, softening on some of the terms about, source code and, and encryption, there was, you know, there was a um, committee that the foreign firms were allowed to participate in some of the discussion. But for the most part, the the direction of the policy did not change very much. And the Chinese, right. you know, have kind of consistently responded that, you know, we're not doing anything that uh, not any other country isn't doing, right? They've been pointing to discussions and debates in the EU about data localization and access to encryption and at, after, you know, the most recent terrorist attacks in, in France and, and uh, Spain and elsewhere. So they've been able to look at what other countries are doing and saying, we're, we're pretty much doing the same thing. Do you, do you buy that idea? I mean, is that is that in fact the case? Broadly, yes. But the difference is, is that in the EU and in the U.S., we are 
relatively more transparent and we are relatively have more of a kind of procedures in place for both pushing back against those data requests and having a better sense of where they're coming from or what purposes. And we relatively don't lock up dissidents um, quite as much for things they may say on the internet. Yes. Not yet. Not yet. We're getting (laughs) there. It's coming. (laughs) And if we do, they're supposed to have, you know, their due process. Right. Uh, What about Chinese companies? Um, What has the reaction from Chinese companies been to the new cybersecurity law, uh, Adam, or the impact on them? Uh, Generally, as far as I can see, pretty quiet, although there's been, I think, um, we saw some uh, companies already being prosecuted under the cybersecurity law for uh, not controlling Chinese uh, uh, users' IDs uh, properly and and um, not taking care of their um, uh, personal uh, identification. So right now, the Chinese firms are the ones that have um, come under the brunt of the law the most. There were some voices out of China about um, not using the cybersecurity law to block um, foreign uh, competition. Um, I think Huawei in particular um, but I think even someone from Tencent said something that, you know, this is not the way that you encourage Chinese innovation. Um, but for the most part, I think the firms have um, been pretty quiet. It probably differs a lot by sector. I mean, you can imagine that if you're in uh, a company that does uh, industrial controls or SCADA control cybersecurity, you, you know, you're pretty much going along with it and, and are pretty happy about it. Um, mm. But the larger companies that want to go global, um, they are worried um, that this just means they're going to face more regulatory uh, oversight and inspection when they try to go to India and the U.S. and Australia and all the other markets where they're already uh, pretty skeptical about Chinese companies anyway. Yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about that whole uh, reciprocity thing. Uh, cyberspace, though, is an area that where change is, is the norm. It grows incredibly fast. Uh, the laws that govern it necessarily take a long time to formulate. States are, are are far behind, I imagine. Is there any realistic hope of, of keeping a leash on something that morphs and grows so quickly and is almost purpose-built just to slip leashes? Is China's new cybersecurity law, you know, a meaningful way to fill in this gap? Mm, yeah, yes and no. No, I think you're right in the sense that whatever the most popular technology five years from now is going to be, none of us know or we would be investing in it instead of, you know, talking uh, in podcasts. And that will eventually cause some challenges to governments that want to control it. But clearly, you can implement some controls and regulations that shape how companies do business. You know, WeChat has clearly been affected by the regulations on rumors and and everything else and, and the censorship and the controls. And foreign companies are clearly investing in data localization in China because that's what the government wants. So companies will be able to develop new technologies that create new problems, but I think states still have uh, really strong tools that they can shape the market uh, and the companies have to respond to it. Right. Adam, you recently wrote an essay for the Hoover Institute titled Chinese Cyber Diplomacy in a New Era of Uncertainty. Uh, what is the upshot and you know, what, from the perspective of cyber, makes this an era of uncertainty and how has that impacted China's efforts to push its cyber diplomacy agenda? I think I think two things have happened. You know, one we we talked about at the top of the program, which is the shift in the U.S. Uh, to Russian information operations, um, and because before the U.S. government was really focused on developing a set of 
uh, norms and ideas about cyber war and cyber conflict? What type of targets should be off limits, preventing a cyber attack to spill over into military conflict? And while the Chinese didn't love that those conversations, they were willing to go along with them and talk about how international law might apply uh, in cyberspace. The information operations discussion, the Chinese have been pretty quiet about. You know, they don't certainly want to criticize uh, Russia as a partner in this space. But, you know, the idea of influence operations and trying to infect domestic politics probably is pretty worrying to the Chinese government. And if that's going to be the future of cyberspace, that that is uh, a long-term concern. The other major change, of course, is the Trump administration came uh, into power. And here, I think the, the big changes is that we're very unlikely to see the continuation of what was known as the Internet Freedom Agenda, right? So uh, Secretary Clinton had given three speeches in 2010, 2011 that laid out the idea that online rights were the same as the rights we have in, in, in our real world, freedom of speech, association, and that you know China was on the wrong side of history, that it was trying to control the Internet, and that the U.S. in particular would support those working for a more open uh, internet. So that would mean training for NGOs, but also the development of circumvention technology. So that clearly raised the heat with Beijing and made it difficult um, broadly to see how the two sides would cooperate in cyberspace. The Trump administration is very unlikely to continue that agenda. So that will be removed. And that you can imagine might make things slightly easier for US-China relations in cyberspace although there's lots of other areas where it's going to be tent. So Xi Jinping wants to cast himself as some sort of champion of economic globalization, but a lot of people would hear his ideas about cyber sovereignty and note that they're pretty out of step with globalization. They're a step away, actually, from globalization. Uh, Could you make a case that it's possibly a better way to manage globalization, this whole cyber sovereignty approach? Uh, I don't know if it's the better way, but it's certainly attractive to lots of developing and and authoritarian or one-party states. Um, You know, the U.S. uh, and its allies argued that cyberspace should be global and open. Um, But if you are a developing country... um, you know, global usually means American. Uh, so U.S. companies uh, gathering most of the benefit, economic benefit from it. Um, and open means, you know, the flow of ideas that you don't necessarily want. Um, so when uh, Xi and the CAC, um, the Cyberspace Administration of China, talk about, you know, cyberspace like any other space has territoriality and sovereignty and we're going to manage it and rule it like we do any other space, that that makes sense to you. It makes sense that it should be regulated and orderly. And so I think that's attractive. Hmm. And you can see why you would follow that that direction. Adam, you, you introduced this idea of data nationalism. Can you can you unpack that a bit? Uh, what what do you mean by it? Is it basically just the assertion of sovereign rights over data physically stored in China? Uh, it's that and uh, along with the sense that this next wave of technological development is going to be dependent on controlling data, uh, in particular for artificial intelligence, but for a whole wealth of big data uses, usages. And so, you know, the, the metaphor you constantly see in the Chinese press is, you know, it's like oil. 
So you have to control it to control your, your future. Um, and so to be able to push forward this next wave of innovation, you want to have the data for security reasons, but you, you, know, you want to have it for economic growth reasons as well. And which countries tend to agree with China and support the idea of cyber sovereignty? Is it an East versus West thing or authoritarian versus democratic government? developed versus undeveloped? Who, who finds the idea appealing? Yeah, it, it tends to be authoritarian versus liberal democracy or more open. But there are parts of it that are attractive to developing states more broadly and even democratic states. So, you know, the, the, the fact is, is that everybody controls the internet in some way or another. You know, the EU... Uh, EU states uh, for either, you know, to control information about Nazism um, or because they also are worried about the power of U.S. technology companies um, or they don't trust U.S. technology companies uh, and their privacy regulations. And then countries like India, because they want to develop their own technology companies and they don't trust China. So you see a whole kind of spectrum of, of behavior that um, would be, you know, more data nationalist or less data nationalist. So I would, you know, you put it both on the open, closed political system as well as techno-nationalist, less techno-nationalist development kind of um, quadrants. Right, right. We've been talking about Chinese techno-nationalism for, what, now 15 years from back in the days of WAPI, the, uh, what was it, Wireless Application Protocol Interface, the standard that China tried to push. Uh, I remember you, you writing at one point that there's a, a popular saying in Chinese tech that says third-rate companies make products and second-rate companies develop technology, but first-rate companies set standards. So has China made any appreciable progress toward that whole holy grail of, of, of standard setting? You know the, the standard setting strategy was a was a massive push, right? WAPI was the was a prominent case, and then there were competing uh, standards with JPEGs and MP3s and Blu-ray DVDs. And at one point, I think there were in the, in the 20s or 30s of competing standards. Uh, hasn't been as successful, I think, in setting international standards. There's some argument to be made that it did help with royalty payments. Uh-huh. The Chinese firms didn't have to make as many royalties. They basically used the competing standards as a leverage uh, in their negotiation with foreign patent holders. I think there's been a lot of shift now with this next wave of technology and the concern about AI and artificial intelligence, less on standards and more on data and algorithms and where that's going to take the Chinese. So with 5G, the fifth generation for telecom, there is a big push for China on the on the standards area. But I think more broadly, less on the internet side and more on this focus on talent, algorithms, and big data. Jeremy. Kaiser. Word of the day. Gua hu dao. Gua hu dao. Gua literally means scrape. Hu, which means beard, is incidentally also the word for barbarian, which is, I think, pretty interesting because doesn't barba also mean beard in Latin, as in like barbarossa, red beard? Jeremy, you have Latin. Barba does mean beard in Latin, but barbarian actually comes from the ancient Greek, and they called the barbarians barbarians because the way they spoke sounded like bar, 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 bar. <laughs> It does. You barbarians do sound like that. But anyway, we are not barbarians, and therefore, today, we are delighted to be talking about a very particular guahu dao, 
or scrape beard knife. Exactly. Tihu uh, dao is also a word I've heard. Tihu dao. Uh, I've never, I've never yeah. used it. Well, whether you guahu or you tihu, you should be using a Harry's razor, yes? Yes, you should be using a Harry's razor indeed, because with Harry's you get a great shave at a fair price, like the over 3 million guys, and maybe some <laughs> ladies too, who have already switched over to Harry's. Claim your free trial offer from Harry's today, a $13 value for free when you sign up. You only need to cover shipping, which in my case is like 3 bucks. And that includes a weighted razor with five precision-engineered blades. Plus a lubricating strip and a trimmer razor at the end for that detail work. And you also get a, uh, a uh, container of rich lathering shave gel um, and a travel blade cover to prevent your blade getting covered in icky bathroom goop. <laughs> hey, you're taking that from... I know, I know where you got that that little addition. You listened to uh, Pod Save America, didn't you? Oh, I did. Yeah, that's right. I was listening to that last night. I wondered where that sprang from in my head. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. We love that. Sorry, John. That's okay, guys. <laughs> to get your free trial, uh, just go to harrys.com slash subchina right now. That's harrys.com slash subchina. And don't forget the subchina because that way they know we sent you and you get a free trial. And now back to the show. Uh, Adam, speaking of AI, uh, in the 14 months or so since we last talked to you, there seems to have been a lot of progress in deep learning and artificial intelligence in China. And certainly there is growing anxiety here in the United States over China's capabilities in what will probably be one of the most important technologies in the coming decades. Uh, what is the view from the security and intelligence community here in New York and inside the Beltway in Washington? And what's your own take on Ch China's actual AI capabilities? Yeah, I think, you, I think you're right. So we've had a number of high-profile reports that came out, in particular this report out of uh, DIUX, Defense Innovation Experimental, which is a part of the Defense Department that's focusing on innovation and getting innovation into, into, into the military quickly. But they did a report that basically looked at Chinese acquisitions and interests in artificial intelligence in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, in particular things that would fall below the radar of the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. and the CFIUS process. So my, minority shares, use of venture capital or private equity, um, and what that might mean for U.S. national security. There's legislation that's being considered on revising the CFIUS process, although it's supposedly not directed at China, is pretty much directed at China. Um, <laughs> you know, it's supposed to point out specific countries that the United States would be worried about and uh, think about lowering lowering the bar. I, I mean, this ties to, to the whole, I think, I think a growing chorus of voices that are calling for uh, reciprocity for restrictions on Chinese tech companies and their operations in the U.S. Um, is this maybe growing louder because of the cybersecurity law and because of concerns about AI? I think it's it's growing louder because of cybersecurity law, because of AI, because a lot of people, I think, would like to do something about China and trade or technonationalism, but are afraid that what the president is considering is so broad and might lead to a trade war that they are uh, focusing on reciprocity as something that um, speaks to U.S. interests but will be more narrow um, and not, uh, you know, be a more finely tuned instrument as opposed to just blowing up everything. 
So I think that's why reciprocity has gained so much attention. I think there's, you know, there's a real sense that, as, as you know, Jeremy said, is that there's been real progress over AI the last 14 months, two years, and there's a kind of real sense that it's right now it's two players, right? It's the U.S. and China, uh, right, and right. and the Chinese government is investing so much money in it. It has, you know, a lot of the top talent is Chinese. Uh, or Chinese American, and uh, China has a lot of data. So those three things all together, and if you're worried about U.S. tech policy, put them together, makes it look like we should be doing something about China uh, soon. And yet, uh, on the whole sort of cyber espionage front, there seems to have been progress. Uh, at the Mar-a-Lago summit in, in Florida in April, uh, U.S. and China agreed to this comprehensive dialogue that was going to include cybersecurity as one of its four pillars. Uh how do you see cooperation with the Trump administration going forward in the areas of cybersecurity and, and issues around espionage? Uh, how's how's Trump doing with the cyber? <laughs> He's great with the cyber. The cyber is bigly. <laughs> Barron is very good on a computer. It's it's too early to tell. So as you said, right, cyber crime and cybersecurity is this fourth pillar of the discussions. There is a meeting coming up to talk about some cooperation. And there was, you know, at the end of the Obama administration, there was some cooperation on some takedowns of botnets and some fake websites. We did have this arrest. You know, the FBI arrested someone who they say created some of the malware that was used in the hack of the Office of Personnel Management, right, which resulted in the theft of, you know, 22 million federal government employees' personal data. You know, what that would mean long-term, is it's unclear. Uh, right now, it seems to be not to have much of an impact at all. It's, everyone's treating it as a, as a criminal arrest, not an arrest of a, of a PLA hacker. You know, I, I, cyber never really drives a relationship. Cyber is often hostage to the larger concerns, North Korea and trade. And so my, my sense is, is that it'll, it'll bump along. The cooperation will bump along. There's, you know, it's unclear who's going to drive it, right? The State Department, what we've heard is the office of the U.S. cyber coordinator, who is the person who was overseeing a lot of these discussions. That office is being closed and being folded into the Bureau of Economic Affairs. You know, clearly the NSC and the DOD and DHS still have people that are interested in it and, and will try to do it. But I don't see it as a big focus. But if trade goes bad or North Korea goes even worse, you know, then cyber could become an irritant again and, and work its way up the agenda. Also connected to Trump, um, has China taken a stance on Russian cyber hacking? And should this be a concern for China? Does it have domestic imp implications? Yeah, so the Chinese have clearly reported quite frequently on U.S. reactions to Russian hacking. I, I have not seen a lot of discussion about you know, what that means for the, for the world and, and Russian influence operations. The Chinese and Russians are nominally allies in cyberspace, right? They signed a, a cyber agreement, a cyber pact, where they promised not to hack each other. But we know that that is not true, right? Chinese companies reported that Russian groups were active in China and Kaspersky reported that Chinese groups were active in Russia. But I think it's very unlikely that the Chinese would say a huge amount about Russia. But I, I think they're going to be worried. We know that you know China conducts similar influence operations, but directed at what they consider domestic targets, right? So Hong Kong, Taiwan, and the couple Australia. of Australia. <laughs> well, that's more broadly, right? Um, not on the cyber side. That has to do with education and, and across right, the right, board. Right. I know. 
but they don't seem to have you know the um, the, the the case we have right of uh, the great cannon and and knocking GitHub off. You know, there was some pushback from the U.S., pretty inadequate pushback, but some kind of warning about reaching out and touching uh, the U.S. Internet for the, for that type of um, political influence. But, you know, let's, if you're an let's, activist... Let's talk a little bit about this great canon. I mean, uh, we heard about it a couple of years back. I was, you know, really in the thick of it since it was trafficked to Baidu that got weaponized. But um, maybe we ought to uh, unpack that a bit. What was the, the great canon? Uh, so the Great Cannon, is, is, as you said, was uh, Baidu uh, advertising traffic being uh, weaponized to knock off specific pages on GitHub. In particular, I think um, uh, the New York Times and Chinese and some some pages that were hosting circumvention technology. Yes, yeah, greatfire.org. Right. Yeah, it turned it into a massive DDoS attack and, and knocked those sites off. Uh, the U.S. supposedly demarched China and said, you know, don't do not do that again. Um, but that was kind of the, the end of the response. But it was a um, notable event, one, because, as I said, you know, we, we had kind of grown used to the idea of China controlling the Internet within China, but not necessarily reaching out and, and touching others. Uh, so that was worrying. And then the second, you know, was the idea that the Chinese seemed willing to sacrifice Baidu's reputation uh, internationally, uh, to 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 hijack it, uh, even though they are you know promoting the going out of Chinese firms and supposedly want the the adoption of these technologies uh, outside of China. Not the first time that Baidu has been thrown under the bus in international <laughs> <interest>. <laughs> I think they just did it because you were there, Kaiser. Exactly. They, they they were out to get well, you. They may have been. <laughs> Actually, I was actually I was the first person to alert our security team to the the the, the attack. Um, so basically, they'd taken this inbound. It wasn't just advertising; it was also the analytics traffic, and just like you know, a small percentage of it, they were injecting it with you know malicious JavaScript, and and causing it to ping the specific subdomains on GitHub every two seconds. It was crazy, and it was it was something that Baidu wouldn't have noticed. It was just a dip, and it was only inbound traffic coming from outside of China. So Baidu, you know, it was like you know taking. Uh, you know, a quart at a time out of a swimming pool to drown, you know, uh, an ant colony. You wouldn't have known. I mean, I think, I think also, look, we're talking about two very different intelligence traditions, right? The Russians have a long history of disinformation and fake documents and trying to create wedges in their opponent's civil society. I mean, there is, of course, a united front strategy that China used uh, which seems to be playing itself out most clearly, as you said, Kaiser in, in Australia. But there is not the same tradition of kind of doxing and fake information and, and false documents on the intelligence side. So, And I would right. think the Chinese would be more skeptical of their ability to kind of understand how to play those, you know, those societies, right? The Russians have a long history of, of, of influence operations in, in, in Eastern Europe and Western Europe. The Chinese are going to be, I think, not as uh, certain that they can truly understand which levers they should they should push. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, even if you just look at the propaganda, uh, RT Russia Today actually is quite an effective uh, mechanism for Russian propaganda, whereas, you know, the billions they GT. spend on CCTV, <laughs> I mean, it's just wasted, right? It, hopeless. Um, Adam, let's turn to Apple and the controversial decisions it's made recently. Firstly, to go ahead and store iCloud 
data in servers in an internet data center in Guizhou. Uh, and second, and uh, more controversially, uh, to uh, agree to take VPN apps off its Chinese app store. What's your take on this? Did Apple actually have any choice? I don't think they had a lot of choice. You know, both on the data localization, clearly that was very clear from the cybersecurity law. On the VPN takedown, again, it's not clear how much leeway they had. I, I saw that David Kay, who's the UN uh, moderator for online freedom, had submitted a letter to Tim Cook asking kind of what the process looked like. I have not seen a response to it. So not not knowing that, it's hard to say, you know, did they somebody come to them, somebody, what they asked them, what they demanded, what they, what they, what they uh, referred to. It's hard to say. But I don't think they had a, had a lot of leeway. I think the, the challenge or the risk for Apple was that in justifying the move, Tim Cook kind of fell back on the argument we've been hearing for, you know, that every tech company rolled out at one point or another, that it's better for us to be there and provide some services than not be there at all. Probably true, but in the long term, everybody who's ever made that argument got bit in the end. Right. right. Transparency would have been a much better policy. I think there were people who wondered why it was that Apple could, could sort of flip the bird to the FBI over San Bernardino, where they had to, to kowtow to acquiesce in, in the Chinese case. Maybe uh, you can explain to our, our listeners why that these are two different different cases. Yeah, I think it, it goes back to the jokes we were making at the beginning about transparency and, and due process, right? In the, in the Apple case, right, you had this phone that was locked and the data was un, unavailable to Apple uh, or to the FBI. The FBI tried to use what was called the All Ritz um, Law, which was had not been used in, before in a kind of technology case. Apple argued that, you know, both legally didn't make any sense. And then also technologically, even though the FBI said, you know, just make a backdoor for this one phone, we're not weakening across the board. Apple said that that was not true, that in fact, uh, it would create kind of technological uh, challenges across the board. But in that case, it was all pretty much above board. It was all transparent. We knew what the legal arguments were. I think the issue in, in China, as, as you said, Kaiser, is that we just don't know what the interaction between Apple and the, and the Chinese government looks like. That's right. Um, that's right. And, and so while, you know, Apple can very clearly state we're not going to cooperate with the U.S. government under these conditions, we don't know, you know, maybe it's said the same thing to the Chinese in some cases, but we just don't know any of that. Um, and so given how dependent uh, Apple is on the China market, you naturally would fall back into a more skeptical view of, of what it's doing there. Losing share, you know, as these Chinese manufacturers like Oppo and Vivo and Huawei and, and, and Xiaomi are coming up. So, yeah, they, they're, they've got their shareholders to look after, too. Right. Anyway, Adam, thanks so much for taking the time to join us on Seneca. Uh, don't hang up just yet. Stick around. Let's make uh, some recommendations for our listeners. You'll join us, won't you? I will, indeed. All right. So before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at subchina.com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at, at SubChina News and on Facebook at facebook.com slash SubChina News. If you like the Seneca podcast, by all means, just please go leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes store or on Google Play or wherever it is you go to review apps. This really helps. It, it really uh, means a lot to us. 
And uh, before we get to recommendations, I do want to bid a farewell to Andy Schweitzer, who has just wrapped up an internship at Seneca here in Durham. Uh, he did some outstanding work and was just a delight to have around. He is headed back to Georgetown now where he's been working on a master's degree in East Asian studies, and he'll finish this year. He's bound for great things. Best of luck to you, Andy, and we are going to miss you. On to recommendations, Jeremy, what do you have for us? Yeah, I would like to recommend uh, a three-part uh, BBC documentary. I think it's about half an hour in total uh, that uh, was recently put online, and it's about live streaming in China. And they basically profile a very popular live streaming young lady, 24 years old, and uh, the challenges of you know running this as a business. And I mean, it is rather remarkable. Uh, the woman that they uh, feature is uh, raking in about $450,000 a year. Uh, she doesn't get it wow. all because, and that's part of the story. But um, yeah, uh, it's fun and it's... Uh, it's it's contemporary China. Is she just eating in front of the live stream the whole time? <laughs> <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> Jeremy, we're in the wrong business, man. Singing, Singing you know, I mean, making we're kind like of plugging razors and mattresses, and we're just in the wrong business. Adam, what do you have for us? I am uh, reading a historical novel by Amitav Ghosh called uh, Flood of Fire, which is the third, oh, yeah, in my, yeah. what, third I think what's known as the Ibis Trilogy, although I am reading them out of order. But it's a great kind of historical overview of the Opium War um, and involves characters from India and, and uh, the U.S. And, um, and China and kind of brings them all together in this, in this very wide, uh, entertaining uh, sweeping saga. Great. That sounds good. I've been meaning to read those. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Uh, I mean, I, I actually not read a China-based fiction novel in God knows how long. But anyway, I've been coming out of uh, another fictional world recently. Of course, season seven, the abridged season seven of Game of Thrones just ended. Uh, so my my recommendation is a podcast called Binge Mode from The Ringer which is a, a sports, generally, I mean, it, it does sports, it does television recapping. It's it's really great writing. But uh, the podcast, Binge Mode, with the hosts Jason Concepcion and Mallory Rubin is just terrific. I mean, they, they are smart, they're funny, they're just quite in-depth. They they really treat the stuff like you would, you know, good literature. There's, you know, exploration of, of themes. Uh, their knowledge just runs so admirably deep on this stuff. And they're not afraid to, you know, to criticize. They're not just pure fans. It's it's very smart. I highly recommend it. Very entertaining, and you know they've done the whole the whole thing. I mean, like seventy whatever episodes from the very beginning. It's just been uh, astonishing. Anyway, so what? Is, this is a again. podcast talking about Game of Thrones. Is basically. yeah, it's just them talking about Game of Thrones. Exactly. What a nightmare! <laughs> <laughs> no, it's actually really great. I mean. Uh, Jeremy, you should probably watch the show and you'll understand why it's... it's I'll watch Game of Thrones in about 10 years' time. <laughs> anyway, thanks once again. Uh, Adam, great to talk to you. We hope to, to talk to you again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me on again. I really enjoyed it. You're very welcome. Jeremy, good to talk to you and I'll see you soon. Yep. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Thanks also to Anla Chang and Soraya Darabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page, which is now merged with the SubChina Facebook page. It's all at Facebook.com slash SubChina News. And follow us on Twitter, also merged now at SubChina News. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care. Take care.